0: Today, we have someone very near and dear to my heart on the podcast. Never did I think this man would end up in sales, but a PhD later, and here we are. The only person from Cary, North Carolina, that is fluent in Russian with no immediate Russian family, introducing the one, the only, Evan Wallace. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome, man. So okay. the, we start every podcast off, as you know, with a flex. So flaunt your stuff. What are you professionally or personally proud of the past couple of years? So during the pandemic, I started a
1: side hustle and yeah. I sold three millimeter acrylic disc on Amazon and got uh, a bestseller badge and sold $150,000 worth of uh, circles <laughs> that are used as hydroponic lids. Um, through an imprint brand known as Urban Hydroculture. Damn, dude.
0: Now that's a flex. That's what I'm talking about, dude. $150,000 worth of sales selling a 3D printed disc. How did it come about?
1: Yeah, um, I was working with an additive manufacturing company based out of uh, Chevy Chase, Maryland. Chevy Chase, what's it called? Do what? Chubby Chase? Chevy Chase, like the actor. Yeah, yeah, right in the DC suburb. So. <laughs> I thought you said, it's bro. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a 3D printer and I'd gotten one of those air gardens like everybody did at the start of the pandemic. Yeah. And I just started kind of dreaming up accessories for it and posting the designs online. And before I knew it, people were asking me to sell it. And eventually I couldn't keep up with the Etsy orders. So we started laser cutting them and sending them off to Amazon FBA.
0: Damn, where were you where were you posting and where did it where, where was the initial places? Because like if you post something on Amazon, it doesn't necessarily mean it sells.
1: Yeah, so I kind of built up a network um by going into Facebook groups and stuff like that. I was selling originally on Etsy, uh, but once you're dealing with, you know, more than 10 orders a day, Etsy becomes quite cumbersome. It doesn't really have the workflow to handle that type of pipeline. So yeah, I was literally in april of 2020 like driving to the post office with a mask on every single day and like my like driver's side seat of my car was just full of packages and i was like going in and waiting and dropping them off so it started small and then eventually i got my partners back involved and moved fulfillment operations back up there and uh yeah that's so crazy.
0: That's that's so funny that it just kind of happened. What was it for? It was just to grow peppers or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there's a passive form of hydroponics known as the key method, where basically, you know, roots need air. Not many people know that, but if you just take your roots and shove them into a closed container of water, the plant will die. So that's... the idea is, is that you put it in a mason jar, the roots grow down, you leave a bit of air space and some exposed roots. And over time, the water drinks you know the plant drinks the water and it drains the water level and then eventually you're left with enough air space until you have to refill it again
0: so it's a form of passive hydroponics yeah <laughs> dude that is so awesome that's so sick i mean every time i talk to you it's just something new and i know i've heard this story before but it's just something new that comes up i'm like oh yeah no i wouldn't have thought of that for sure so now I know, and I know where you came from, but tell me currently, what is your job? What are you doing? Right, so I work in technical sales. I'm a sales application engineer
1: uh, under Briggs & Stratton in their energy solutions division. Uh, I am part of a division that is the home standby, that's their generator market and their lithium ion battery market. So in 2021, Briggs & Stratton acquired what was known as Simplify Power back then, Um, a company that had come up through the film industry by making battery packs for like Tron Legacy and Conan and Madman and 30 Rock. They were doing all those shows and doing the battery packs for them since people were wearing them. So they had a good chemistry and eventually made a play for the residential and commercial market. So primarily what I do is interface with solutions integrators and design custom lithium ion battery solutions for commercial and
0: industrial clients. So can you put that in layman's terms for anyone that doesn't have such a big vocabulary?
1: Yeah, um, I design backup power systems for businesses who are afraid to lose power because it would cost them a bunch of money.
0: Cool. So like, what's your target? Like, what's the customer base? Who are you usually working with? We're working with small businesses to industrial scale
1: businesses. So we kind of cover the wide gamut. Um, More so we target zones where there are kind of regressive energy policies such as California, Um, net metering, basically the rate at which you can sell electricity back onto the grid just got slashed and diced. So instead of selling your electrons or the electricity you generate via a solar panel back on the grid, During the time of day, you know, peak production hours, i.e. when the sunlight's out and you can generate those electrons, you now have to store those electrons in a battery and sell them back when the grid is actually strained, i.e. early in the morning when everybody's getting ready to go off to work or after sunset when everybody's at home and has the air conditioner cranked down and is using their household to, you know, its fullest energy
0: potential. Interesting. So, like the reason that you target those markets can you outline that for us right so
1: there's not a like standard sets of like market tendencies across states so we have to go and target different states based off of the legislation in that state the relationship between like energy users and their utility so basically we build where we target based around what the market looks like how well our brand is known and what type of projects we see in that area based off of the chemistry of our batteries and whether or not it complements it so there are some like types of energy storage applications that don't really fit our battery chemistry if you have a stage 3 ev charger our battery is really not a good fit for that. Um, we're more long-term support and delivering a lower load over a longer period of time in safer conditions. God damn,
0: bro! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, those are good answers, dude. I the technicals, man. You're so excellent when it just comes to describing and explaining how things work. Even though I don't, I still don't think I can pull it off. But that's why you're a sales engineer, right? So like your day-to-day, what does that look like? My day-to-day
1: is waking up in the morning and putting out the fires that come in um, overnight. So I'm located on the East Coast and my office is based out of California. So generally I am receiving emails until late in the evening. And there's a period somewhere about seven to eight at night where I just kind of put my phone on silent. So really because what we're designing is complete solution. We sell the batteries, but we have an inverter partner. We have somebody who's integrating it. There are the authorities having jurisdictions who permit the system and the firms that we are working with. And generally when you're rolling a project through your sales pipeline, you're gonna deal with multiple hiccups. So generally the first thing I do in the morning is eat my breakfast and try to put out the fires. Um, then around lunch, I'm doing like lead follow-up and then responding back to, you know, the smoldering waste that has kind of, you know, reignited itself while I was turning my attention to the new leads. Um, and really, it's just kind of back and forth between that and getting quotes sent off to customers and interfacing like cross channelly with our, you know, engineering department, our, you know, stock and orders department and just making sure that things continue to flow. So it's a lot of touch points because sometimes these projects can take two or three years to close.
0: Damn. So that's your sales. cycle is like two to three years of just like working back and forth with these companies. The shortest sale I think I've done was maybe
1: three weeks from initial outreach to us having a physical PO in hand. Um, but that was an outlier, um, generally. Yes, we're, we're dealing with a very long sales cycle. So on average, I would say between four and six months, upwards of two years, depending on the application and how big it is.
0: Interesting. Damn, that's the longest sales cycle we've had. So congratulations. Well, that's pretty you. cool. <laughs> I, the, I also, you're the first sales engineer we've had. We've talked to the account execs, but you're the first person on the... Uh, what do you even call, consider yourself support? You're not really support, right? You're doing sales too. So I don't like power dial
1: or anything like that. Our leads do come to us um, lukewarm. Um, So Mm. generally I will reach out to them and set up an initial call. I take the requirements and then basically figure out how we can design a system to fit the phase of power and, you know, whatever their backup requirements are. So I do work sales. I'd say it's a hybrid role between sales and electrical engineering.
0: Interesting. And do you have an electrical engineering degree? I do not. I do not. i a
1: (laughs) writing a dissertation on the mediatization of Russian propaganda. So I come squarely from the humanities and and have no no engineering background whatsoever. Having said that, I've always had a technical background, um, which is, I think, kind of how I found myself into this position. And I have a strong kind of research background. So when I first joined on the team and was like kind of getting my training wheels off, a lot of what I did was like looking at grants and policies and just, you know, a thousand page long, like legislation that talks about, you know, renewable energy and stuff like that. The inflation reduction act of August of last year, obviously being a big part of that because it's a 30% tax credit Dang. that applies to our product.
0: Yeah. So, you're one of my favorite people because of how you get to everywhere you are. It, it, you like, I, and I want sh- I want people to see that, and I want that to shine through because I think you need. I think people need to see how you got to where you are because it's like not on accident. So let's start from. I don't know. What, what What do you think is a good starting point in terms of your like professional development? Ah, so in
1: high school, I was kind of messing around with like HTML and um, I'm a bit older than you are. So I was oh my doing gosh. MySpace layouts uh, for bands and I, <laughs> yeah, so
0: I was, um, you know, I older older than I am, bro. <laughs> <laughs> that's old, dude. HTML for MySpace layouts. Let's go. Okay. Exactly.
1: Exactly. You know, you had your little gifts of like sparkling stars and stuff like that. And if you wanted something more professional, you drew something up in Photoshop, sliced it up and threw it into a table and, uh, you know, had your, your band layout. So um, my school knew that I was like one of the more, so Kitty oriented people in the web development course, and I got teed up for an internship because my school district was being sued. Their websites weren't ADA compliant. So <laughs> I, was kind of, I was thrust into like cubicle city as an emo kid um, in high school. Oh, I forgot
0: you were emo, dude. Oh, that's so good.
1: I was was showing up with the skinny jeans and like the hair down to here and like my My Chemical Romance or Rosa shirt. And I'd go and sit in a cubicle with all of these programmers and analysts and just sit on Notepad and like fix this god awful code that had been produced years ago and (laughs) add the alt tags that made it work with OCR and other ADA accessible technology. Um, so I
0: don't understand. <laughs> you just don't get what I'm doing, Mom. I'm fixing <laughs> these websites to make them ADA compliant, Mom. Yeah. So
1: there were actually four of us originally, and they just kind of packed us in a room with no windows. And I think after two weeks, I was the only one left. <laughs> so it's like a war of attrition. But now I made it through and ended up working as a contractor, and eventually for the
0: school, for the school district. Yeah. That's awesome. Were they paid? So they were giving you money for this?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was nothing. It was like twelve dollars an hour in in two thousand and ten. So it was, it was like. I mean, for me at that point in time, like among my cohort of emos, you know, I was like highly paid. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously. The wealthy emo dude. <laughs> Yeah, I was the guy who could afford to buy the concert tickets and the gas money to get into Orlando. So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, I forgot you were in
1: Florida, not Cary, North Carolina. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And actually, I'm from Raleigh. I've never
0: lived in the congested area. Oh, man. I really screwed up that intro, huh? (laughs) I thought Cary was whatever. You're close enough to Cary. It's fine. You're within Cary distance.
1: Right. So I guess after that, um, I worked in that role for a bit, but then they started having me programming COBOL, which is Common Oriented Business Object Language or something like that. It's a very old programming language and actually it was backed up on punch cards, which are wow. the, those pieces of paper that you would feed into a reader and the program was read or the protocol was read off of the indentations on the piece of paper. So it was a very old database and I went and I learned, I got my feet dirty in COBOL. I'm probably one of the few people of my generation who, you know, know that type of language, although I couldn't remember any of it practically today. And over a period of months, I realized that basically I was doing the role of an analyst who was paid, you know, $60,000, $70,000 a year, sorry, and I was being paid $12 an hour. So I realized I needed to go back to school. And rather, than, how old
0: were you? I thought you were in. I thought you were in high school when this was going on.
1: I graduated high school, and I ended up working as a contractor for the district for two and a half years after that,
0: making twelve an hour. Twelve an hour. Damn. Okay.
1: Had a crummy little apartment, but I loved my life. And uh, eventually, I wanted more, and I realized that you know the work-life balance was really bad. I was kind of going really hard at it. And I was doing work for people who are making way more than I. And I just kind of told myself, you hit a glass ceiling because you have no education. So I went and went to community college and then went and got a humanities degree and then went and got another humanities degree and went and got another humanities degree after that. still working <laughs> on it. And uh, throughout that process, I kind of got tied up with continuing to do some technical background work, which got me my my job with the 3D printing company, the additive manufacturing company. And okay. you've kind of already gotten the story on that. So after I graduated, I had this very weird resume. Um, it looked just strange because it was half technical and half like, oh, I'm writing about medieval Russian history. Um, so when you looked at my publications and then kind of my other, Oh, look at what I can do. You know, I know Autodesk, um, I just look like a freak, like a zombie,
0: but you're not, I want you to tell me, tell, tell everyone what like your focus on, like you said, you got three humanities degrees. What are you focusing on with those humanities degrees?
1: Okay. Okay. So my undergrad degree was in European history. I got a master's degree in medieval Russian history, and I was interested in, um, Structural Marxism or like the interactions between different institutions. And for me, the two institutions that really kind of like got me all giddy and stuff was church and state. So there was a heavy kind of handmaiden style relationship between the Russian church and state um, during the Rurik dynasty, basically in Russia from the late 10th through, you know, I'd say 18th century when Peter the Great came in and westernized Russia. So that's what I focused on for my master's degree. And then I went into a digital humanities PhD. And digital humanities is kind of a blanket term that is applied to anybody in humanities who knows how to program or use digital tools to provide, you know, kind of qualitative and quantitative analysis to humanistic data online. Um, so, for instance, my dissertation, when Russian troops rolled over uh, Kharkiv and into Ukraine uh, back a couple years ago. I started scraping tweets um, about people talking about it and kind of the rhetoric that was being pushed out by Russian state media outlets. And I used uh, like Orange, which is a natural language toolkit library, to kind of run audience sentiment analysis and kind of other forms of computational linguistics to look at, okay, as a Western media audience, buying these narratives because they're not enfranchised and don't know Russian history, it's not taught here in the West? Or are they not believing it and realizing that, you know, hey, this is propaganda, and I shouldn't buy it wholesale. And I should not believe that, you know, Kyiv has always been, you know, like a a Russian city and that Ukraine's just kind of this false, um, you know, identity that's kind of spun up with uh, over the past century, what have you.
0: I didn't know you did that. (laughs) Oh, it's so sick, dude. That's so cool. Did you publish your work anywhere? Can anyone that's like supremely interested in the, the public sentiment of the Russia Ukraine war from the perspective of the Russians? Is that readable? If anyone has anyone listening enjoys, uh, there's a, uh,
1: an edited collection that came out last year. Um, medievalism in finland and russia um i did a chapter in this and had some input on the introduction and once my dissertations like fully together i plan on sending a bit of it off to you know like see if i can get some publication but um i'm kind of driven financially so at one point in time i thought i was going to go into academia Um, but as it stands right now uh what I do and you know the type of work I'm doing and the ability to work from home I don't see myself ever going back into that career field so this this dissertation's kind of turned into a love child for me it's like my swan song you know interesting
0: I mean that that's academia's loss for not paying enough dude because yeah. oh my god <laughs> like, uh, like so you this was because uh, this was college you got your PhD I know you were working on your PhD but then like is there anything in between that people should know that you were working on? Because weren't you like something with the U.S. House representatives or something? Or did I dream that? The what? Like with the government of some kind? Did you work in the government I world? began looking
1: at internships and had some conversations um, about perhaps going into, you know, an analyst type position. Um, but, you know... I had been working for a firm based out of D.C. and knew a couple people that worked in those jobs and maintained their clearances. And, you know, my wife and I very quickly figured out it was not going to be a lifestyle match for me. So, no, I never pursued it. Um, But I I definitely had aimed myself as, you know, that potentially being an alternative career path until I heard that, you know, it's really um, a lot different than
0: what you might think about it. So there there's nothing we're missing there. I feel like we're missing something in the history of Evan, no? Because like my first memory of you, I met you in college when we were doing I was doing the satire paper with you. Uh-huh. Like my first memory was like, oh, I can fix your website while you're holding this like Russian, like some some red book that was like this thick with just Russian something some some guy that you were really interested in or something oh
1: yeah i mean it's probably up there on the bookshelf i don't know what i was reading at that point in time no um yeah i i may be missing it i don't know (laughs) like so
0: now tell so we so we got from we went from (laughs) being an emo kid coding at was it florida What, what what city in florida
1: i was in rockledge florida uh, Rockland, which is Florida. in Brevard County. So it's like near Cocoa Beach and about oh, okay. a 40-minute shot from Orlando.
0: Okay, so you went from like that area and coding there. And then now you are a sales engineer at Briggs and & Stratton. And in between, you got a PhD in humanities because you felt like you needed an education. So now, what are what, what do you want to do next? Like what what's, what's next for you? Because you have so many skills and so many different avenues you could go. Like what are we going to do now? I think a lot
1: of what drives me is learning um as indicated by kind of my background and so what really attracted me to this position and has kept me interested in it is just how much you have to learn so i want to continue expanding my knowledge because i feel like that just makes you more marketable yeah and uh i i really kind of see myself at this point in time staying within the renewable ener- energy industry and just continuing to you know expand my presence
0: and uh, my role fair enough I have because you you're the kind of cat and I always tell you about this and I think you should think about it you have that you have that big enough brain where I think you could very comfortably be like a very staun like a good leader in an organization. 'Cause you're level headed, but you're also like very well read. And if you're not well read, you can get well read in like a day. <laughs> so Yeah, I don't know. I've I've never
1: thought about managing people. Um, so I guess that's a bridge I've yet to cross, but uh, I, I'm not I'm open to all paths, you know. I gotta just follow the water where it goes, and that's pretty much what I've been doing up to this point.
0: Fair enough. And it has led you, as all things do, to sales. That's <laughs> what we talked about. It. It, le- it always leads back. All roads lead to sales, which is what, you see a little reframe sales logo? I like to think the circle around it is just what, what it is. So now continue on. forever, everyone always ends up doing some form of sales, whether you like it or not, you're going to do it. It's not your choice. Even in academia, you got to sell
1: yeah, you have to sell yourself. You're always selling something. Um, that's for sure. So, um, it's just easy to sell a product and not sell yourself sometimes because you can kind of just say, "Oh, hey, look at this, not look at me. so the the change in uh, I guess position and kind of the the perspective you're working at, it's it's very interesting. And the people you meet along the way, um, that has been very entertaining as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, the salespeople are some of the most curious and entertaining and interesting individuals because they get paid to, you know, schmooze. Exactly. Exactly. And like in a in a, it's it's obviously more in depth than that. But if you break it down, like almost every salesperson I know has a personable attribute to them. Absolutely. So like, now to Evan right now you're like the sales engineer at Briggs and Stratton at least in your division right
1: Right so there's two divisions there's a commercial industrial division which I am on and then there's kind of the residential and distribution division So yes um as of right now I guess you could say I am the dude um on the CNI side of things um we this entire market's had a rough year so it's been interesting. And there's been a lot of paradigm shifts. Everybody thought that the Inflation Reduction Act was going to just usher in all of this business for you know the lithium battery industry. But there's a lot of apprehension in the market about these products. Um, yeah. It doesn't help that you see an article about a Tesla Powerwall catching on fire and burning a house down about once every other week. Um, so it's been an interesting process just you know, engaging in sales and also re-educating your leads as, you know, you walk them through the process.
0: Interesting. And now what I remember, cause like a, a few, like three, four, however many years ago, I know um, when we were chatting, you were concerned about the job market for yourself specifically, cause you didn't know what direction I go. And right now this job market is brutal. It is absolutely brutal for salespeople for just about every industry that I can see. So your job hunt is unique because you're a unique person and you have a unique set of skills and uh some, and things that people can't emulate. But if you if someone was listening to this and they feel like lost or like trying to find a path, what would be some advice you'd give to them? For sales for whatever, however you got to where you are, because some people are struggling just to find anything and you got like, you weren't a sales engineer and now you are. I would say you have to find
1: how, what you've done previously can tie into sales. Um, I had a bit of marketing background um, and I had a research background. So I went and learned a CRM. It was Salesforce to get, you know, the little certificate so I could have that on LinkedIn. And I think I even took a product management course. And basically I had hit a brick wall, um, three months into my job search. And again, my resume looked like a Frankenstein. So I retained some professional help to reformat it and went at it again with, you know, kind of reincorporating my CRM knowledge and just saying I can interface with these different departments and kind of t app marketing post and stuff like that and really that's where i found synthesis and ultimately a job
0: perfect so you, your big advice is to uh, like i guess one of the things i heard from there was like go look for help like you need to go find people that know that you know that can help you to get to where you need to be
1: Absolutely. And if you don't know anybody, just go and create an account on LinkedIn and start looking at people's profiles who have the job title that you want. Um, That's really replicating um, what they're doing and how their profile looks is going to get you through that front door, because often you can throw your resume into a system and it'll get bumped out time and time again. Uh, So it's making sure that you can get through kind of that first pass. And into where you're actually talking to a real human and then you can kind of lean back on that you're a good person and you're well-spoken or you know able to talk or come off as friendly or approachable and so you got to get to the point where you can demonstrate your soft skills and often to do that you know you need those hard skills albeit you know learning a crm or you know using Orem or some type of other dialer or something like that to you know, demonstrate that at least on day one, you're gonna know how to do a couple of things and that they're gonna be able to come in and fill in around the gaps and, and turn you into the employee that they're hoping you'll be.
0: That was a phenomenal answer. Thank you, Evan. So now, was sales engineering something you were specifically looking for or is it just like a bucket you ended up falling into? It's a bucket I ended up falling into, absolutely. Absolutely. Um,
1: when I looked at the jobs description for the position, it really, I had electronics background from 3D printing and I grew up helping my uncle reduce some rental houses that he owned and he was a master electrician. So I knew a little bit about wiring in series and parallel and like, you know, power factor equivalencies and stuff like that. But um, really I came in heavy on the soft skills and trying to just say, you know, Hey, I do know the basis of sales. Um, I have a little bit of previous experience in it with my startup, like give me a shot. And so I got my first interview. Um, I'll never forget. My boss called me on my cell phone. Um, and he was like, well, I know exactly what I'm going to do with you. And like, it just kind of went
0: from there. So yeah, definitely. I was- I, you had to someone just had to listen to you and if someone listened to you they were just gonna like you were in my mind one of the most hireable people I've ever met
1: It's just your resume is
0: weird like that's the issue it's like a phd in medieval Russian history who wants to help me sell my product exactly
1: exactly I tend to back it off and just say ba humanities now because it just it raises too many questions and yeah history is a humanities degree so I tend to like um, pull it from the micro out to the macro now when I'm like elevator pitching my backgrounds, yeah. Um, but that's something you can do once you have your foot in an industry, you know,
0: when you get that PhD, are you going to go by Dr. Evan Wallace?
1: No, no. Um, my father actually has comma PhD on all of his debit cards and it annoys me so much because You're supposed to use your title within your praxis or your your area of expertise. So like when you put PhD um, behind something like that, the reason that exists on like a debit card is so that people know that there's a medical doctor in the building in case an emergency happens. So I think it's a bit of a misnomenclature. So no, I will not like put comma PhD behind like my, my email
0: signature or anything like that. But which is the beginning? You do dr dot. You do Dr. Evan Wallace. Can I call you Doctor? You can. You can call me whatever
1: you want, man. But um, yeah, I at this point it's like a passion project for me, and it's something I have to like finish myself just because I set out to do it and I don't want to leave that chapter of my life open and I'm finished.
0: The only person I know that's getting a doctorate has <laughs> a passion project. <laughs> <laughs> that's so. Oh, that's so awesome. That's so hard. That's the hardest passion project. That's so difficult. Getting a PhD is a monster amount of work. So now, for everyone listening, as a sales engineer at and Stratton, like, what are you currently going to end up making for at the end of this fiscal year? Like, what are we going to be looking at? Right. So
1: it's been a tough year in our market. Um, the entire industry has not hit. Um, what it was set out to do if you looked at like a wood mckenzie report last year projecting this market we've not even materialized 50 percent of the revenue that was supposed to be generated in this space so <laughs> i'm w2ing like just over 100k this year
0: still good And i hit
1: sales incentives it would have been a lot more than that but i digress you know i was able I mean, to
0: survive <laughs> yeah man that, that's completely fair and next year it's always going to be better this year's been tough for everybody unless you found yourself in a really fortunate industry but those are looking few and far between as of late so don't don't fret about it and 100k is still really good in north carolina that's like 500k as far as i'm
1: concerned
0: magical house and that incredible blueberry bush in the back so evan for everyone listening at home what, what are your keys to success? Like what, what would you kind like, if you had to attribute like your success to a couple of things, what do you think you would attribute them to?
1: Relationship management. I think that's when you're working a long sales cycle, like I do, mm-hmm. you have to maintain the relationship. So it's taking a concerned call after hours, it's doing the right thing and it's ushering, you know, and, and, you know, really white gloving the deals. That's, when I close a deal, um, often the feedback I get is that like they felt like they were in a partnership with us, and that's something I try to emulate through all the deals that we do because these are not small deals. These are you know starting on the low end of like fifty to sixty k and going all the way up to multi million dollar deals. So when somebody is laying out that type of money, there's a lot of apprehension, and we're dealing with the technology that I am. That's kind of new and really being utilized in spaces that um, people aren't familiar with. Um, it, it really, the trust between you and your client is important. Um, they've been carrying around a cell phone in their pocket for decades that has, you know, in an NMC battery or some other form of, you know, lithium. But when you're talking about, you know, dropping a shipping container of lithium onto a property, you find there's a lot of apprehension. So really it's engaging in clear and honest communication and making sure that uh, you're giving them all the information that they need and staying with them after the deal is closed until the project is commissioned.
0: Damn, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's the first relationship management one we got. In. that's excellent. That's phenomenal work. So now we're nearing the end of this. Even though I could talk to you for hours because you're just so damn interesting, but what do you want to leave people with? What do you want to leave any sentiment, any thought?
1: Yeah, I guess when I first got into sales, I was very nervous. I called you a couple times and I was just like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. And, you know, emulate your peers, especially the ones who are doing good and figure out, you know, of what your mojo is and how you're going to differentiate yourself everybody has their own sales pitch and how they go through it and so for me like i've said a couple times here it's like providing context and information and making sure that they understand how the process is going to go like what type of tax incentives they're going to get what questions they're going to have to answer to their permitting official and just really being a partner with them throughout the entire process. So don't doubt yourself. Um, When you start in sales, really you're just learning to redefine yourself as somebody who's, you know, not selling yourself, but selling your product. So if you've landed a sales position, I would say you've sold yourself. Now just go and figure out how to sell your product.
0: Hell yeah. And on that note, Uh, This has been the fourth episode of a reframe sales. Thank you, Evan, for sharing your insight and coming onto this podcast. I know we're going to see great things from you and I do not, I I expect a VP in front of your name here soon. Not maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but I'd I'd give it within half a decade. You're going to be a VP of something. Just don't know what it's going to be yet. I appreciate the vote of confidence. Thank you. (laughs) Always brother.